Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. Support for the show comes from Mercury. There's an art to making the complex feel simple. Everything should be in sync, so even the smallest part serves a bigger purpose. Simplicity can transform your business operations. That's why Mercury powers your financial workflows from the bank account so ambitious companies have the precision control and focus they need to perform at their best. Apply in minutes at mercury.com. Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. Today, we've got a bonus episode. It's Casey Newton's discussion with the CEOs of Parler and Getter. Casey spoke with George Farmer and Jason Miller on Wednesday, February 16th at Pivot MIA. It was quite the event. Have a listen and stay tuned for more bonus episodes in the feed. Let's start with a little bit of news. Jason, last night it was reported that uh, Guo Wengi, uh, reportedly a, a big financier of Getter, filed for bankruptcy. What does this mean for Getter? Well, it doesn't mean anything for our plans. Miles is someone who's an ideological ally. He does not have any financial stake in the company, something we've said pretty clearly from the beginning. We have multiple international investment funds who have contributed and give us our seed money to get going. We have great capital, good standing position, uh, just starting to get out and uh, start to add additional investors. So that's pretty excited. And as we're approaching 5 million people signed up for the platform, uh, it's the sky's the limit. All right. So the runway is still as long today as it was yesterday. Uh, absolutely. In fact, today we just rolled out Getter Vision, which is our short video competitor to TikTok and Instagram Reels. So new products, new features. Uh, it's pretty exciting. All right. So for folks in the audience who may not have uh, tried out Parler or Getter just yet, uh, I would love for each of you to give, give me the elevator pitch. What, what are these apps? Well, Parler is a free speech orientated social media network uh, with a nascent NFT offering. Um, it has been labeled as the conservative haven of Twitter. And uh, from our perspective, we like to view ourselves as the free speech haven, basically Twitter without censorship, effectively. All right. Jason? Yeah. And I would say, I think one of the important ways to look at this dynamic is not so much of a, here are the uh, alternative platforms uh, that are competing against, say, Twitter and Facebook. But I think it's also important to point out the fact that Facebook is actually losing people, that Twitter is effectively a dying platform. It's, uh, I think the Washington Post described them as the, that their business model was misery. Uh, with Getter, so there's plenty of room for whether it's Getter or Parler or True Social, other platforms, even Rumble uh, taking on uh, YouTube. We think that the traditional, the Silicon Valley tech platforms are, are dying. With Getter, we describe ourselves as the all-in-one free speech platform. Uh, right now, obviously, we have the features, uh, essentially the microblogging competitors uh, to, say, uh, Twitter, Facebook, or other platforms. We have live streaming that we've offered. Just, again, today launched our short video platform. But where we're going as a company this summer when we launch GetterPay, which will be our two-coin crypto ecosystem, that will not only be a competitor, say, to the, the Apple Pays and the Alipays of the world, but we also think we're going to bring the DeFi aspect and peer-to-peer -peer lending to a whole community of people in the U.S. and beyond who have never had the opportunity to really experience that. 
Right. So those are uh, huge ambitions. You brought up uh, alt platforms, um, including Truth Social. And I think just yesterday we saw Donald Trump Jr. Uh, shared a screenshot uh, of, of the president posting. So when this thing launches, how are your apps going to adapt? Um, well, I think it's important to define the terms of debate, first of all. Yeah. Um, you know, what is Truth Social? Um, Truth has done a deal with Rumble. Uh, they clearly have an eye on the video distribution network. Um, from that perspective, I think they're going to be engaging with Rumble very aggressively and trying to take on a kind of Netflix style of business. Um, I don't necessarily think that competes with our style of business. Um, and I think then, as Jason just hinted at, you know, you can have quite a broad array of free speech oriented social media sites which are trying to cater to that growing market of people who don't necessarily want as strict moderation policies in their social media. Um, and so to that end, you've got Truth, you've got Getter, you've got Parler. All of us are pitching ourselves into that space. And of course, you know, one thing that we've done is you know, try and take that model overseas as well, right? So what does free speech look like overseas? What does free speech look like to the consumer in Saudi Arabia, where we have you know, a good number of accounts, Iran, where we have a good number of accounts? It doesn't look the same as it does in the US consumer market, right? It doesn't look in the same as it is for the US domestic consumer. So the world is growing in our space. Um, there's definitely more com competition, but I think that you know, there's a good reason for all of us to exist. I do think, though, that um, there's an assumption that where President Trump goes, the free speech-loving conservative crowd is going to follow. How much does it sting that he hasn't joined your platforms? <laughs> um, well, I think we, we, Jason probably has talked to him as much as I have talked to him. Um, you know, we've, we've had meetings with the Trump Organization you know, as I said, I think they definitely have their eye on things which are outside of our remit. You know, we are not a video distribution network. We don't have any intentions to be in that space. Um, we also are building out an NFT and Web3 style of business, right? We're trying to do more in the NFT space. We have a platform launching relatively shortly. We have a marketplace coming out relatively shortly. We already launched our first NFTs in December. Um, all of this is kind of outside the traditional social media world, I guess. Um, and you've obviously seen Facebook and Twitter try and pitch themselves into that business model as well with sort of crypto social. Um, we have our eye on that territory as well. Um, so I think from that perspective, you know, that's not something that Trump is really looking at. And I don't think Truth Social is really going to be competing in that space. Yeah. So it doesn't really bother me. He's free to obviously choose whichever platform he wishes to use. Right. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I'm actually looking forward to it. I'm going to see the president this afternoon and I'll make the pitch again to say, uh, got at real Donald Trump, uh, all reserved and ready for you. Um, but one of the things that I think people might find interesting is when President Trump announced in October that he was going to uh, roll out True Social, we actually saw 135% increase in new signups in the 10 uh, following days as opposed to the 10 preceding days. And a lot of people might not realize this, but actually about 20 to 25 percent of Trump voters quit social media when President Trump was deplatformed. We know that from our market research. Now, they may not have gone and deleted their accounts, but they got frustrated at what, uh, again, that Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, the deplatforming, and they just said, you know, uh, we're over it. This is, this is silly. What we're seeing are people getting off the sidelines. So every time uh, President Trump uh, makes a, a new announcement or uh, any time Twitter and Facebook go through their round of kicking people off, we see them come to these new platforms that have started, whether it be mine or George's, 
anybody else. And I always say to kind of channel my inner George Bailey that every time Twitter, Facebook kicks someone off of their platform, another getter angel gets its wings. Uh, so we're, it's, you know, it's terrible for democracy, uh, but hey guys, keep kicking people off because they're coming over to our platforms <laughs> quick. Uh, but I, but I also would, would say with regard to President Trump, uh, I wouldn't rule him out joining uh, additional platforms uh, beyond his own. Uh, I've certainly encouraged him to say, as he looks towards a potential 2024 run, uh, that he should be on as many platforms as possible to amplify his voice. So I think that's a, a distinct possibility. But uh, I think George also made a, a smart point the direction all of these different companies are going. I think when you look, who are our competitors now, but who are our competitors in six months or a year or five years down the road are going to look much different. I think everybody has learned from the mistake that Twitter made where uh, that the microblogging on its own and selling advertising on microblogging isn't enough to go and take you to the, the stratosphere. All right. So we do have to have this fight because you just said that deplatforming is bad for democracy. I take the complete opposite view. I think when you have the president of the United States inciting violence on Twitter, leading to death of law enforcement officers, urging the overthrow of a free and fair election. You're going to tell me that removing that guy from the platform is bad from democracy? What's good for democracy? No, I think that I think it's a terrible precedent to go and... Is your, which side is your audience on? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I, look, you guys are wrong. Uh, I, I think to go and, and kick off a sitting president of the United States is nuts, and it sets the precedent. It sets the precedent that certain people have free speech rights in this country and certain people don't. Now, it's uh, all of us, and I know we'll probably talk additionally on, on moderation, which is very important to make sure the platforms are safe and inviting for people to join. And obviously there are uh, laws that need to be adhered to both in the US and internationally. But what we're seeing right now from this White House, where you literally have the press secretary of the White House going and picking winners and losers in the free speech debate, saying that if someone's been kicked off of a platform, they should be kicked off of all platforms. If this was Donald Trump saying that, you guys would be going nuts. And so when you clap at that, imagine if this was reversed and you had a Republican in the White House who was going and kicking people off just because they didn't like their comment. That's insane. I think it's an assault on the First Amendment. And I think as Americans, we really take, we take for granted I think we take for granted the fact that we have free speech, and that's why it's good that we have platforms uh, such as Getter and Parler that are rising up and saying, you know what, we're going to take those rights back. All right, so, so let's get into the free speech side of things. Um, you know, I would love to get your thoughts on, like, what are some of the good ideas that you can't find on Twitter and Facebook? Well, what, I, what are people being starved for here? I, I mean, just to, just to echo what Jason was saying there, and I think, you know, the there is a philosophical point underlying this whole conversation. And yes, we can, we can pin it down on exact specifics about what people are saying. And of course, you can get into the minutiae of the debate around that. But you actually do have to set, take a step back and talk about that philosophy of free speech and what you're trying to do. Because at the end of the day, Jason's right. You know, when you all applaud, there is, a, there is a point right now where you think, yes, this is the right thing to do. But at some point, you will be the subject of all of that, right? Everyone here will say something at some point in their life where all of you will then have the archaeology mob coming after you and telling you that what you said in 2011 or 2016 or 2021 is the wrong thing and you no longer think the right way. And that's why free speech is important because at the end of the day, we all make mistakes and you need mercy and you need grace and you need forgiveness. And if you don't have that and you don't have that sort of social media platform which allows for that, you're all going to get cancelled, right? At the end of the day, you're all going to get wiped out. To answer the question about what now, right, is important, I think there's no greater topic than COVID, right? Because at the moment, you saw what happened last, in the last two years. In the last two years, the major tech companies have shut down debates around COVID, right? Um, whether it be the efficacy of cloth masks, whether it be the efficacy of lockdowns, whatever it might be, right? And at the end of the day, 
all of these debates are now the ones we're having in the current national conversation, right? Because these are actually now suddenly open for debate again, right? And you've even seen, I heard somebody yesterday, a major journalist, I won't name him because you might go and cancel him, but a major journalist coming out and saying, actually, there is need for the dissenter's voice, right? And that was not an opinion which was held, right? You didn't have a dissenting voice. You had the voice, and that was it, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly uh, a need for dissent. I think the question is, well, let me ask it a different way. I think one reason why companies love to come along and say we're for free speech is because it means they don't actually have to pay as much attention to what their users are saying, right? So I'm not saying you don't have a principled view. I'm also just saying it makes your business easier in a lot of ways, right? You don't have to hire as many moderators. You yeah, don't have to screen uh, as I, many I, posts. I, I think you're just totally off. I think just like just completely off. Uh, we take moderation very seriously. Uh, our terms of service make it very clear that we're not going to allow illegal behavior or doxing or uh, things that, uh, you know, racial or religious epithets, those types of things. We take that very seriously. The difference is that we don't use political discrimination to pick winners and losers. It's not this community gets to have free speech, but that community doesn't. So, in fact, we always, the, the only two as a kind of litmus test, ideological guidelines that we have at the platform when we hire people to the company, do you support free speech? Do you oppose cancel culture? And if, if you agree with both of those, uh, then great. You're people who we want to work with. Because again, as you look around the world, there are different uh, communities and people are impacted in, in different ways. So you got to think about uh, the companies in global terms if you want to be able to, to scale. Uh, but to say that, that moderation isn't taken seriously or that there's uh, some blind eye at uh, this turn, I, I think that's uh, just misleading. I'd say you're off on that. Sure. But, you know, when you when you look at even just those guidelines that you just described, uh, I think, you know, whether or not you allow people to use racist language is arguably a political question, which sort of leads me back to this place of, are we really fighting over nothing here? Doesn't every platform just kind of have to come up with its own rules for the road? Some are a little bit more restrictive, some are a little bit more expansive. But to say that one's for free speech and one for one isn't seems too simple to me. Um, well, I mean, I think they're generally accepted. I mean, there's what's legally defined, right? And that's something that we've constantly come back to. You can't shout fire in a crowded room, right? You can't threaten to kill people at a certain time and place. You know, there are various, you can't dox people, you can't steal other people's property, intellectual property. All of these are constitutionally protected rights, right? So you can't just say, well, what does free speech mean? It means nothing to some people and everything to others. It's like, no, we all have the accepted rules, the constitutional rules of the road, if you like, um, which we will have to stick by. What you're seeing in the tech giants, what you're seeing particularly in Twitter, for example, is not just a one-off decision being made, and this is something that I talked about with Kara Swisher on her podcast, but you know, a subjective line of thinking which is being made over a long period of time, which has clearly defined a platform's viewpoint, therefore means that that company has now become not just a platform, it's become a publisher, right? right. And so that consistent line of rational argument by them over a series of years has clearly defined them now as a publisher, right? If you're just saying this is a one-off where we're going to sh shut down somebody because they've said one thing we don't like, okay, you can have the merits or the, you know, the argument about that particular comment, but where they've taken the same line of reasoning, as Jason mentions, political discrimination over several years, that clearly means that that company, for example, is no longer subject to the rules of Section 230. 
Okay, we, we don't honestly have enough time to get into Section 230, but, uh, but I want to sort of keep going in this direction um, when it comes to free speech. So before you became CEO of Parler, uh, I think we might say it enabled more free speech, right? And there was some violent uh, material that was on the platform um, and uh, led to a lot of problems that I think the company is still recovering from. Uh, how has the company adapted since then and has it had to compromise at all on those free speech values? Uh, in answer to your latter question, no. Um, we have the same moderation principles that we had in, in place beforehand. Um, what you're referring to really was the issue that the company faced around scale. And I think anyone sitting in this room who's you know, run a tech startup will probably have experienced that same issue. Um, there are several points I'd make there. The first, I think, is scale, right? So we went from a company with less than a million accounts to having 16 million accounts in a very short space of time. Um, that obviously incurred huge scalability issues, and obviously we kind of suffered the, re the repercussion of that. Um, we were still moderating um, at the time of January the 6th, which of course is what you're referencing. And uh, you know we published that in our report to the House Oversight and Reform Committee, where we talked about how we were working with law enforcement to talk about the threats of violence which were on the platform. Um, so that's the first kind of major thing. The second thing is, you know, we came back to the table and after the uh, January the 10th, when we got deplatformed by AWS and by Google and by Apple, um, there were various studies which were published and charging documents which were analyzed in the aftermath of the Capitol riot, which talked about Parler's involvement. And it found us to be a very small minority actor compared with someone like Facebook. Even Instagram was listed as a higher um, sort of social media platform with engaged content than ours in terms of extremism. So again, they looked at us, they said, we don't like this guy, we're going to kick him out. So as a result, you know, we were kind of unfairly scapegoated. But do we moderate more now than we did? No, we don't. You don't moderate more now than you did? No. So if, let's say, sometime in the next two or four years, there's political violence again in America, what, what are you going to do to ensure that it's not happening on your platforms? We would do the same thing that we did last time. We would, <laughs> we would moderate threats and incitement to violence, which is exactly what we've always done. They're against our terms of service. Right. Um, we took, we've taken exactly the same line since that day as we had before that day. So we, would, we haven't changed anything. We've always tried to be cooperate, cooperate with law enforcement where needs be, um, or cooperate with, with whoever's, I mean, we, we still receive subpoenas in relation to January the 6th to this day. Um, so we, we work with them and we work with law enforcement to do what we can, but we moderate in the best fashion that we see fit. Right. Jason, you launched after in the wake, wake of January 6th, but how do you think about this problem? Well, again, as talked on the moderation front, something yeah. we we take very seriously, and so we uh, use a, a essentially a two pronged system with both AI as well as paid human moderators, and then we also have kind of a, a couple thousand person uh, volunteer force that kind of uh, supplements uh, some of that. But that's uh, even if they weren't there, we still have plenty to cover everything with the, between the AI and the human moderator front. Uh, but this is something that we're we're constantly watching again, not just in the U.S. but all around the rest of the world. Something that, uh, that we pay very close attention to and obviously cooperate with law enforcement uh, as needed. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, as we look forward for where this is going, all platforms are going to continually update and revise uh, certain aspects of their community guidelines or their terms of service or things like that. There are always going to be different things that, that come up. And I think uh, all of us share the same goal. I shouldn't say all of us. I'd say at least... I think George and myself share the goal of making sure that we have inviting platforms uh, where we want people to come and join and feel safe to be able to join the platforms. And we monitor uh, things like that. But I, I think George is also very right that uh, as we've started to learn more about what happened on, on January 6th, I think they go and try to point the finger at a particular social media platform uh, and try to uh, lay some kind of uh, blame at them, I think, is um, uh, just wildly off the mark.
Yeah, I mean, I think it was the president's fault myself. Um, but, but I want to talk about censorship in a different way, which is, um, you know, the most popular social platform in America right now is TikTok, which is also the platform that censors more than any other. Like, until three years ago, you couldn't even show uh, somebody who had a tattoo, like, on the For You page. And I've been talking to folks who are like, you know, Americans talk about free speech as a value, but when you look at what they choose, they're often choosing censorship. Like, the market is rewarding censorship. So I'm curious, like, what gives you the confidence that there's actually the audience you think that there is there for free speech paradise? Well, I mean, it's... it's <laughs> what drives consumer demand? Where it's like the, the golden egg question of the entire <laughs> world. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, it's different things to different people, right? I mean, there's no, there's no, there is no one answer to say, well, like, this is going to be the key formula for success. Um, what you are seeing right now, of course, and we've seen this, and this is why our platforms have some success, is because of the fact that there are, there is obviously nascent consumer demand for, you know, anti-censorship, free speech, social media platforms, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't exist. So, you are obviously seeing platforms which cater to that demand flourish, right? At the same time, of course, TikTok, which I would say is a completely the kind of opposite end of social media in some ways, it's far more centered around content creation. That's what makes it so popular, of course. The short form content is absolutely beautiful. I mean, that's why people love it, right? So, um, and now you've seen YouTube shorts and you've seen a whole lot of other people kind of move into the space. So on the back of that, you know, what, what do the two cater to? Well, there's very, very different demand profiles, right? And, you know, supply and demand, we're supplying a particular need. TikTok is supplying a different need. That's totally fine. There's room for both. Hmm. Do you feel that way too? Uh, I would say, uh, look, there's a lot of, it's not just uh, ages, but I think there's also a lot of it has to do with countries and where people are. So say, for example, in Japan, uh, which is, I think, our number, I think our fifth largest country that we're in, um, Twitter is actually bigger than Facebook. Uh, I think it's uh, Twitter's bigger than Facebook. I think yep. it's Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, just uh, those are two places where those countries have really grabbed it. But even as I, I mentioned earlier with regard to the, the short video, uh, and this is where we just launched our uh, Getter Vision, which is our competitor to uh, TikTok and Instagram Reels. Uh, but the short video clip space is where, that's really where the future is as far as for the younger audience. I mean, even Zuckerberg in his most recent quarterly earnings said, I believe his Instagram Reels accounted for 60% of their user engagement. And that's also part of the reason why I think they're moving away from Facebook and going into this metaverse, because I think the, the I think Zuckerberg also said they're gonna lose 45% of their under 18 audience over the next two years. Uh, and so you see where kind of the, the trend lines are going, but I think whether it's the, the microblogging space or the short video format, or some people go into the content creation, or, or obviously with the, uh, say, the crypto and the payment platform sense, I think a lot of the companies are going in, in different ways. But I uh, got to go back to the, the thing that you started with, though, was saying where uh, you didn't necessarily see where this need or where this, this community would be. I think you have to also keep in mind that the big tech companies have effectively written off 40 to 50% of people in every country around the world. This isn't just a US problem. We see it in Brazil, where they try to silence the Bolsonaro folks. We see it in the UK with anyone who uh, would fall into whether it be a, a lever or, uh, you know, anyone who um, uh, supported Brexit. We see it in France, obviously going out their presidential election right now, the way that uh, Zemmour and Le Pen are being politically discriminated against. So the, the free speech issue is going on all over the world, not just here. But if you're not being discriminated against, you're not going to see it. Because, again, like President Trump got kicked off and you applauded that, like you like that. Many people, um, there are, what, 73 million people who voted for him, or 75 million, whatever the exact number was, who would say, uh, that's a shame, that's terrible. So there are people all over the world who I think would have a, a, a strikingly different viewpoint. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, although I, I always hasten to point out, look at what the number one page is on Facebook. It's either Dan Bongino or Ben Shapiro every day, right? Conservatives are cleaning up on Facebook and Twitter, and it's always strange to me that they won't acknowledge how successful it has been for them. I think it has been a miracle for the conservative movement that they've been able to use social platforms to be as successful as they had. Does that not strike true to you? Yeah, but I think, again, this is something that I've had to face many times in terms of questions like, well, we've got this study which shows that, you know, conservatives are not as well censored, you know, this is a misperception, right? So read the studies, right? The studies actually say nothing like that. The studies talk about the fact that engagement is much higher on conservative pages. True, engagement is, right? The top three on Facebook, Breitbart, Fox News, and I think the Daily Caller generate as much interest as the BBC, CNN, New York Times, you know, a whole load of other platforms, ABC. Um, but that doesn't address the fundamental question. Like, have they censored other right-wing platforms? Is that the reason? that these three are more engaged with because they're narrowing the funnel of content choice, right? So at the other end of the spectrum, you're saying, well, look how engaged these platforms, look how engaged these channels are. Yeah, for sure. But that's how many other platforms have you, how many other media organizations have you taken out in an effort to get to, to these three, right? So the concept of censorship engagement is not a direct correlation. You can be a highly censored but engaged person, right? That doesn't, they are not mutually exclusive. So to say that, this is why, well, you've got really high engagement. Yes, you have, but that's not to say that you haven't taken out a lot of people to get high engagement. We'll be back in a moment with more from Pivot MIA. Support for this show comes from Virgin Atlantic. Let's talk travel. Whether you're setting off on a business trip or taking that well-deserved summer vacation, we're always so focused to getting to our destination that we forget to embrace the journey. Well, when you fly Virgin Atlantic, it serves as a reminder that a memorable trip begins right from the moment you check in. That's why they offer loads of special touches to truly elevate your time in the sky, such as in-flight movies, music, TV, and podcasts that you actually can't wait to dive into a snack bar that you can help yourself to at any time, and an iconically British high tea high up in the clouds. They've got these little salt and pepper shakers that you're encouraged to pocket as your first souvenir. And if you're feeling really fancy, how about a wine tasting experience at 38,000 feet? Uh, so really, we're just getting started. From their brilliant next level service to the food, the entertainment, the planes, the clubhouse, the crew, and so much more. These are just a few of the many special touches that make me love flying with Virgin Atlantic. And I do, I fly Virgin Atlantic a lot. Check out virginatlantic.com for your next trip to London and beyond and see for yourself how traveling for business can always be a pleasure. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. 
Do more with Viator. Welcome back. We'll now return to Casey Newton's discussion with Parler's George Farmer and Getter's Jason Miller at Pivot MIA. All right, let me ask one more question about market demand, and then I think we are going to take some uh, audience questions. Um, so um, one other thing that I've wondered about, that some people will, will sometimes say that the reason that they believe that a platform that uh, caters to conservatives may have time, trouble taking off is that liberals won't be around to dunk on, right? Like that the fun of these networks <laughs> is actually yelling at people, making them look foolish, right? Um, is, is that a challenge for you? Is creating a... A, a useful dunking surface. <laughs> you want to go first? Uh, yeah. Well, as, as someone who could uh, never really uh, dunk um, in my basketball days, <laughs> I could get up to the rim, but that, just that uh, I, I can't jump. So um, no. But I, I think there are a couple things when we launched Getter, we made a very conscious uh, effort, and especially with as polarized as things now, and people kind of uh, retreating to their kind of ideological corners in many ways. I mean, you see it with cable television and other. That's part of the reason we made such an effort to have a global base. And in fact, the U.S. is only about 50% of our base. Uh, and up until January, when we uh, grew by 50%, it was about 37% of our base. So we've made an effort to make sure that we have an international, diverse set of voices that are out there. And right now, the reality is a lot of the passion in the free speech debate is in the center-right. I'd say traditionally in U.S. history, the free speech debate was largely a center, center-left. Uh, as you go through talking about whether it be uh, women's rights or African-American rights or gay rights or any of the, the debates have really fueled a lot of the fire around free speech in, in recent decades or over this last century. But guys, the pendulum's gonna swing back. And it, it, we see Nicki Minaj getting sentenced to digital jail for daring to raise questions about uh, vaccine effectiveness. Uh, the cancel culture, once that pendulum gets swinging, you never know when it's gonna come after you. And so that's why it's good to decentralize, get things away from Twitter and Facebook and all the power being in the hands of these, these few people. And uh, look, it's uh, the fact that we've recently added uh, everything from feminists in the UK to uh, a whole bunch of mainstream media reporters uh, here in the US, I think is great. So uh, more than barrier, not saying that you're, uh, people are necessarily going to agree uh, with the, the left to center perspective all that much, but they're welcome. All right. It is now time for the free speech portion of today's <laughs> chat. Um, if it is uh, more of a comment than a question, I am going to cut you off. So questions only, please. Uh, hello. Sure. Hi, I'm Claire Cruz. I work in legal technology. Uh, I wanted to thank both of you for coming here. I, I appreciate that. I always like hearing different perspectives. Um, my question for both of you, what percentage on both platforms of like Gen Z or say people under the age of 25 are using both of these platforms and what are you doing to obtain more of that age group? Yeah, I mean, our, our platform, gosh, on user metrics, I mean, it's, I would say under 30 is, probably about 40% of our user base. And then in terms of NFT consumption, which is obviously something we are still kind of testing and rolling out, um, and we'll be doing a lot more of that in the next six weeks, um, pretty much 100%. So every, I think all the NFTs which have been purchased, all the ones that we've tracked at least have gone to kind of uh, sub 30. 
that. And I would say with regard to Getter, I'd say with the more the, the microblogging aspect, what we initially launched with, uh, that probably skews a little bit older, but that's part of the reason why we launched Vision uh, and why that's out today, at least in the, the beta testing format, because that will bring in a whole uh, younger uh, dynamic. And so uh, my 13-year-old who's on TikTok and kind of was showing me how it works, the um, and uh, <laughs> the, being the, the boomer in the house. Uh, but again, that's where all the energy is uh, for the, the under 18 or even under 30 is on the short video. So that's a very distinct part of the reason why we're, we're moving into that space to be able to broaden out and diversify the, uh, the user base. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. 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 You guys are brave. Um, okay, here's my question. I'm Karen Kahn. I run a company called Life on Women. Um, do you all have like security teams that are monitoring IRL, things that might be happening in the violence space uh, in the world as it relates to the conversations that are happening on your platform? Obviously, like, we're watching you. Big Brother's watching you like a fucking hawk. But are you guys watching you? Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, you know, in, well, in terms of moderation in real time, we have AI systems which obviously monitor everything that's being put up on the platform. The average takedown time of a comment on our platform which violates our moderation policies is less than three minutes. Yep. Um, you know, there are obviously areas and which... do you see pods? Like, for example, like I know like at Airbnb, I'm psyched to see Brian speak. They have, you know, I have to think about how I'm going to say this. They know when people are booking pockets of Airbnbs in random places of customers that haven't been Airbnb customers before, like around the capital with the insurrection, that shit's going down. So do you guys have those capabilities? Oh, yeah. I mean, very much, well, I mean, we, yeah, I mean, we do. I mean, yeah, very much so. We can monitor in real time. I mean, we, we have very good real-time monitoring. I mean, we have... And what do you do about it, though? Uh, well, it depends on where it falls within our moderation policies, right? I mean, as I said, incitement to violence is taken down. I mean, we come under bot attack pretty frequently. Yeah. Um, you know, we are very conscious of that. We obviously have to monitor it in real time. If I suddenly see, you know, 150,000 accounts sign up from the same IP address, well, okay, fairly, fairly, fairly bloody obvious, right? Um, so, you know, we obviously deal with that in real time. And so we obviously have to monitor what's going on on the platform in real time. We have AI systems which do that. We work with Hive. That's a publicly yeah. known piece of information. Um, and they're very work, good. And do you work with All right, like, I'm gonna have to, that's gonna have to be the last question. All right, yeah. Uh, Candace, hi. Hi, question for you. When we return, Casey gets a surprise question from Candace Owens. That's coming up. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, 
what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back. Here's the rest of Casey's panel at Pivot MIA. Candace, hi. Hi, question for you. First, I just wanted to clarify, because I know that there's so many well-meaning journalists in the room who have actually written and updated something that you said on stage that was incorrect about the officer being killed on January 6th. He actually died of a stroke two days later, according to Vox Media, Reuters, Washington Post, and plenty of journalists in this room. Um, so I just wanted to clarify that. That came out much later, but it uh, that's not true. I did want to ask you, though, because you said uh, that you felt, or at least made the assumption, it sounded like you meant that you... Donald Trump deserved to be deplatformed because he was inciting violence. That was your comment. And I wanted to ask you, are you basing that on what he actually said? Because his last tweets, just to read them out loud, because I think it's important to actually know what we're talking about, um, the 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first, to make America great again will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way. Go home in peace. I just am trying to understand. I'm asking for everyone at the U.S. Capitol to remain peaceful, no violence. Remember, we are the party of law and order, respectful law, and our great men and women in blue. Thank you. So I just wanted to just, if you could expand a little bit on what you mean when you say that that's worthy of being deleted from a social media site because it's inciting violence. I want to operate on facts, not narrative. Well, sure. I mean, I think when you spend the entire period after the election saying that it was stolen and then you mass your supporters on the lawn of the Capitol and then you suggest that they just sort of walk into the halls of Congress while on the votes Twitter. are being I'm counted. I'm talking specifically on Twitter because you said this is right. Well, because what I believe is that we actually should take off-platform behavior into account. I don't think you get to be a terrible there person in real life. Thank and then you for you, yeah. answering my question. Yeah. All right. So off-platform behavior you think should count. Yeah, I do think so. So murderers and rapists and everybody who has a platform, fine, but off-platform behavior should be taken. These are complicated things, but but something else I believe is that the President of the United States should actually be held to a higher standard than everyone else, not the very lowest. Okay, thank you for answering the question. All right, one more. Hey folks, thanks for being here. So I think one thing we can all at least agree in this room is that the political discourse in this country is getting very hot. Um, Really? (laughs) um, So I'm wondering, we're here to also talk about innovation. A lot of times when I hear moderation, it's a lot of after the fact cleaning up the fallout. Do you think that you two can have a place in your platforms to maybe innovate in the space of how do we lower the temperature of conversations as they're happening mm-hmm. rather than just cleaning up the fallout? Um, and I'm trying to be wary of this whole idea of censorship because I know you guys are sensitive to that. And so I don't know how you see this idea of moderation, you know, even like I said, cooling the temperature of a conversation. Is that something that you've looked into? Is that something that you think I, I would say from from Getter's perspective, getting in and trying to influence the conversation or say, uh, let's go and take it in this direction or, or something else. That's not what we're about. We want to have a platform for people to come and actually speak their thoughts and opinions. And I think you start getting down a real slippery slope when, uh, say, if you start putting up warning labels. That's one thing that we don't do, for example, with Getter. Either it fits the terms of service or it doesn't. As soon as you put up uh, a warning label or some kind of, uh, you know, uh, be warned before you click on this, then it becomes editorializing that takes it into an entire different direction. So for example, the fact we're YouTube right now, uh, if you're talking about climate change and it's outside of their particular worldview, they'll throw up a label. Now, uh, last time I checked, climate change didn't have anything to do with insurrection or any kind of violent activity. Or I mean, that's, that's uh, I think, a pretty egregious example. Uh, but I think you have to be very careful if you're taking it from the perspective that, uh, that you want to go and say uh, guide or manipulate or, or tone down certain conversations, because then at that point, you really you cease to become what you set out to do, which is be a free speech platform. So um, I, I don't I think the the goal, our approach to it is to try to diversify and get as broad of an audience as possible. Uh, 
not just uh, ideologically, but even one of the, the directions we've taken is just trying to get people who aren't necessarily even politics first. Uh, for example, uh, Enos Cantor Freedom, uh, the basketball player in the NBA, someone who he talks a lot about international issues, but I don't think people view him as, uh, say, a political figure. Uh, we have a dozen or so MMA fighters who like to talk about everything from smashing people's brains to uh, to cooking, uh, and we're glad to have those perspectives. But I think I think you accomplish that by getting more voices on board rather than trying to suppress uh, uh, people who are passionate. Do you, do you mind if I clarify? So like Twitter, for example, if you're about to retweet something with a comment and you haven't clicked that link, they now say like, hey, do you, do you think you should read this first before you post? They don't stop you from doing anything, but they're just kind of nudging you in the direction of saying, hey, let's have a productive conversation. Yeah, I think they're not going to do that. We got to go to the next yeah, hold question. Up, but, but to that point, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, we're not. Thank you. Although I don't remember ever you're seeing welcome, that Bob. say if I'm going to go on to re, uh, repost something, say on Twitter from the New York Times. I don't think I've ever gotten one of those. It's only if I say I'm going to repost something from, you know, Breitbart or something okay. like that. Okay, so it's, uh, I mean, all right, they're let's picking try to take one more question. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. I'm yeah. Evan Engel. I produce, I'm a producer with Pivot. I have a question about the difference between moderation and censorship, which I can't really see. George, you said you're going to obey the Constitution as your guide, as if our courts are not full of, of constitutional problems around free speech and trying to, to decide what's in line with the Constitution and what's not. Uh, Jason, you said you're not going to allow hate speech or, or, I think, direct calls to violence. But the second you take that down and you say, I'm moderating, won't somebody say, no, I meant it as a joke and you're censoring me? We, what is the difference here? Well, so, I mean, you're absolutely right. There is a very strong debate as to be had what defines kind of the concept of free speech. Um, the, the kind of easy answer to that is that we have to use common law, right? We have to use what's established currently, what's, just, what's constitutionally accepted, right? So I go back to the, the commonly used example. You can't shout fire in a crowded room, right? That's, that's well known. Okay, well, you can't incite to violence. You can't, kill, you can't say, I'm going to kill you at this particular place and time, right? That is not allowed under the Constitution, right? Uh, it's conspiracy to murder. So as a result of that, you can't say, well, like, I'm going to go on a platform and say that, right? So that's a very clear example of what we don't allow, right? Um, there is a difference between moderation and censorship. Censorship is where there is clearly no established political ground or legal ground for, for discussion around what you're talking about on the platform, right? So for example, like COVID-19, COVID there's clearly no legally defined COVID-19 narrative in the courts as to what can and cannot be talked about with regards to COVID-19, right? But you're, you're still yeah. gonna have issues where an elected official gets up and he says, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And is that a call to violence or is that free speech? And you're, you're not, there's, the courts don't know the answer to that. You're gonna have to solve that. Yeah, well, look, of course, at the end of the day, if you're asking is somebody at, at some point gonna have to make a decision, yes, they are. I've used this example before in terms of the free speech scale, if you want zero to 100, we're trying to set the bar as far towards one end in terms of maximal, maximum allowable free speech, right? Whereas other social media platforms are probably more in the middle, right? So, well, And the other thing uh, that I would, I would add to that is the fact that ultimately it's going to be the consumer choice for where they want to go. We think that with Getter, we've really found the, the sweet spot at the bat of making sure that people can express themselves politically, that they can have, they can voice their opinions without the threat of being deplatformed or censored or algorithmed uh, out of existence, which the whole algorithm game is something we haven't really gone into, but I think it's actually a, a, a really big deal. It's just, it's effectively just censorship by another name. Uh, but each platform is going to have their own uh, 
terms that whether it be the people who uh, run the platform or their community that are going to have uh, different aspects of input into that. Uh, but again, ultimately, it's going to be a consumer choice on where they want to go. And I think that having more options for people uh, and decentralizing this is going to be much better than just saying, hey, three Silicon Valley uh, tech billionaires get to decide your rights, not just here in the U.S., but around the rest of the world, too. Right, but now yeah. No, Evan, that's here. it. Thank you. Yeah. And, <laughs> this is an honest question, no agenda, really. I'm from a company called Criterion Global. We've been in Miami since 2012, and we focus on um, growth in international markets, so a lot of LATAM, et cetera. And one thing that really struck me is that we talk you know, a lot about the Constitution, the continuum of free speech as kind of the, the premise of your platforms, but you also talked about doing business in Saudi Arabia and I believe Iran. How does that work? Like, <laughs> you, how, you can't download Grindr. Like, how, how does that work? Yeah, that's the most interesting really? question that's been asked. Um, oh. So, sorry, Chris. Um, sorry, everyone else. Um, so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that's, I think that that comes back to, I mean, not to get too philosophical about it, but that does come back to the philosophy of what free speech means. Like, what are we actually even talking about here? Because what we can talk about in the US is so different to what we're talking about in Saudi. The reason we have such a large follower and news account in Saudi and Iran is because these are highly censored societies which value the ability to speak out beyond the government censors, right? So what does free speech mean there? We still have to, we still have to issue our community guidelines, right? This is what we operate on in terms of moderation on our own platform, right? That's why I come back to those things that we talked about, inciting violence, doxing, intellectual property theft, pornography. All of these areas are things that we moderate, right? But beyond that, we are not moderating because again, you start to get into that subjective territory where free speech in one country means something very different to another, right? So that's why free speech is important and it is different in Iran, it is different in Saudi, it is different in the US, it is different in the UK, it's different in Sweden, right? All of these countries have different angles where the people themselves, the consumer, to come back to Jason's answer, the consumer wants to choose what they want to consume and what they want to say on a free speech platform. And also, I just added that, that uh, going back to my earlier point about how we take for granted our free speech rights here in the US. So Brazil, for example, Brazil, obviously they wouldn't have a First Amendment or not the same way because it's obviously a different country. They don't have that as part of their constitution, free speech, which I just kind of assume that every country would. Maybe they'd look a little bit different, uh, but actually Deputy Carol Detoni is writing that in, and trying to get it passed in uh, Brazil's Congress, which that just blows my mind that this massive democracy like that doesn't even have guaranteed free speech. And I think that's part of the reason why both Getter and Parler have done so well in Brazil. Uh, you take a look then, uh, just uh, their neighbor though, Colombia, does have essentially a no censorship law. But as far as how it's uh, applied then to um, uh, the tech community, I think it's really uh, kind of open-ended. Uh, but there are certain countries where uh, I know that we've made the decision, we're just not going to invest the time and effort to scale uh, because some of their laws might be too uh, restri restrictive. Um, but at a certain point, it probably gets to where there's certain, uh, if we do want to scale truly globally, uh, probably have to go to uh, moderation, looking at it differently in certain countries. Obviously, certain things will be allowed here in the U.S. are going to be different than what's allowed in Saudi Arabia or Iran or, or places like that. Uh, but uh, again, it's something we spend a lot of time on. All right. Well, that is all the time we have. I appreciate the debate. Jason Miller, George Farmer, round of applause. We'll go.